I'm Mark Brandt, and today I'm here with entrepreneur, social innovator, activist, anti-recidivism leader, James Anderson. I am the classic example of the person everyone says, forget about, he's never going to change. I didn't think I was going to change. I thought I was supposed to spend the rest of my life in prison. Suddenly, there was one person who helped me experience something that I never felt up until that age, and that was love. And I made a, a dramatic decision at that moment. I was gonna put 100% of it into changing my life and helping other people do it too. My brother, James Anderson, coming in live from New York City. My dude, how are you? Mark, man, thank you so much for having me on the show. Always, of course, incredibly inspired by everything that you're doing and uh, just happy to jump in and have this conversation today. James and I met in Montana uh, on a mountain, on a misty mountain. Uh, where he was there sharing his story and I was doing some facilitation at a network that we know and love called Hatch. And James told his story and, you know, I get to see a lot of speakers and I mean this with all due respect. I try to fast forward to the commercials on a lot of them and that's just because the stories don't resonate with me. And it's not because they're not good speakers. It's just that we've been doing this, James, you and I on stages for about 10 years each and you just are hoping for somebody that moves you. Right. Like you're looking for your Rick Rubin, like inspiration moment. And when I saw you speak, my mouth was open. I was like, oh, this kid is actually just channeling exactly his experience. And this is there's nothing rehearsed here. This is just real. So I use that also to set context that James lived experience is part of the reason that he's better uh, and, and why there's so many tools we're going to share here today. But I'd love to before we go backwards, go to the present and just be in the present with you now. Where are you? What are you working on? Tell us everything. Yeah, so I am just moved to New York. I was based in Los Angeles for, for a long time, as you know. And I took this kind of sabbatical 18-month journey around the world and, you know, incredibly privileged to come from the background that I do and be able to have done that, um, but needed that in order to like really center myself and, and heal myself to be in a place where you know, you want to give from a place of fullness, not from a place of emptiness. And that that was really kind of like my journey in, in achieving that. But right now, I, I've just been consulting and kind of get lending my knowledge to people. Uh, one of the projects I'm really passionate about right now is called The Next Chapter. Uh, and it helps people coming out of prison learn how to code and get into full-blown software engineering roles in big tech companies, which, you know, to me is, is incredible because of how life-changing that is. We love that and love those those step twos where people are like, oh, folks who are in prison wouldn't be able to do that. There's this consistent like breaking the narrative and breaking the tropes around that stuff. But before we go any further, I realized that I used some jargon uh, or a terminology that we're both very familiar with because we work in the movement. But anti-recidivism by definition is just saying we don't want to see people going into prison in a cyclical movement. We don't want to see them going, going back in, going, going back in, going, going back in. We want them to find a way out of that cycle. And that cycle, as we all know, is imposed on people of color dominantly. The system is broken. It is racist. It is all of the things. So what are the channels to work out of that system? A very unfair and unjust system. And so the anti-recidivism movement is to ensure people aren't stuck in the cycle of recidivism. So the thing that you're passionate about now is seeing them come out and work through and getting jobs where there's dominant work, which is coding or a lack of skilled work, which is so great, man. How is that going? Like, What's the size of the organization? Yeah, it's, it's going incredible. I mean, just to, to give some context to for everyone listening, I know this has fluctuated over the years, especially since all the work we've been doing, but the recidivism rate hovers around 70% in most places. So that means that over 50% of the time, your tax dollars, everything that you're going to like kind of create like these safe communities, right? Because that's what people think that prisons do. 
uh, it's failing 70% of the time. And, you know, we always say this, that like if any business model failed 70% of the time, people would want it out of business, right? We wouldn't keep supporting it. Um, so that's why it's so important to understand these numbers because they kind of get buried under. Uh, it's not it's not what the news media is necessarily reporting on a daily. Correct. Um, but yeah, so the organization is definitely growing right now. Its size is, is fairly small. We're kind of like scaling. That's why I came on board to really kind of help put some of those pieces together. Uh, it was born out of a company called Slack. So they were kind of like the facilitators that brought this and were the first ones to hire people that were formerly incarcerated. Uh, but it's now expanded. It's like 14 hiring partners from PayPal to Asanya to, you know, just incredible. So, of course, if anyone's listening to and has like a tech company, like please Google Next Chapter Project. And, you know, we have a form right there that you can sign up and, and get involved. But what I really love about this, Mark, is that, you know, for so long, the movement was kind of like, and rightfully so, because it's so difficult. Let's give people whatever we can find them. Like, let's let just get them a job. And now we're saying, hey, you're, we're literally going to give you like a generation changing job where your children are now going to be in a completely different place and their children are going to be in a completely different place because of what you set today. Right. And that's by defining a larger wealth class and allowing people to actually come out of poverty, period. Then you're not imposing that same cyclical piece on other people. So uh, a couple things in that. Um, Shout out Slack, 100% shout out Slack, Vancouver-based uh, founded company. Uh, love those guys. Always really good, good humans involved in that company. So it's absolutely no surprise to me that this is the move there. And then secondary, you know, I think digging in a little bit further into the prison complex to think about that 70%, you know, it's worth double clicking on. Thank you for sharing that math because if you can imagine, and, you know, sure, quick anecdotally, and then I want to dig into your origin story, essentially. This is a superhero origin story today, but- um, I got a speeding ticket in Washington, all right? And I'm ba based in Canada. I had no idea I got the speeding ticket because it was mailed to an old address. There was a clerical error on the Washington state side. Uh, when I went to cross the border again, I was detained, arrested, cuffed, uh, Mirandized, and actually imprisoned um, for, uh, what was it? Missing an appearance, right? So it was like refusal to appear or something along those lines. And they were like, you know, understand that this is a, a crime and that this you're going to be charged with this. And I had to engage an attorney, et cetera, et cetera. And it turned out to be a clerical error. Um, but I have the wherewithal to do that. Of course, I had the money to do so. It was a tremendous waste of time. There was a mark on my record for a moment. It was a bit of a nightmare. Now, if I am in poverty and that same thing happens to me and I can't do that, and I get a failure to appear, which is what it is. I go to jail. Not, not maybe I go to jail. Now, if I go to jail and now I'm in that system and I come out of jail, you're saying 70% chances I go back in. Now, tell me the system's not broken, right? And that's like the most privileged, like this is what happened in a very specific thing. The system is literally built for if you do not have the resource, you will fail and then we will keep you here because the industrial prison complex is a giant money-making machine that will not be stopped. So I think you and I have always prided ourselves on saying the quiet parts out loud for people to be able to have the whole conversation. And I think those two pieces, if folks want to dig in, there's a lot more going on behind it. And it's so easy. We always say you're but one step away or one paycheck away from homelessness. And we talk about that a lot. But what about incarceration? No, you hit on the point of bail. And like, that's such a big one, because I think sometimes these things have been around for so long that we don't question these structures. And, and you're basically saying, if you both commit the same crime, but one of you can afford to pay for bail, you're, you're saying that the person that could afford to pay for bail is less likely to commit a crime. So the person with more money is less likely to commit a crime or be unliable to like come back and go to their court case. And, you know, just fundamentally there, 
you know, you're saying a lot. That's saying a lot right there. And there's no facts to back that up. None whatsoever, aside from the system. And, you know, we're seeing a president of the United States face down over 35 charges right now. He's at home. Yeah. That's not the case if you're not him. And so to realize the system is so deeply unjust, it takes an incredible amount of metal. And I say that to be able to navigate the system without absolute fury. And so why I've always been so impressed by you is not only your resilience, but you're able to hold transformational space or liminal space in a way that's incredibly inspiring. I'm in conversation with you and you can see I'm getting heightened already. For anybody who's listening, like I'm already getting angry. Notice how calm James is, right? And so James's origin story, I think is a critical piece here because as a friend, he's also helped me temper my, my flare-ups, if you will, because of his lived story. So I think we got time today, man. Would you mind starting from the start? No, we could jump into that. And just for like a little piece on like staying calm around it is the only reason why we've been able to accomplish what we've accomplished was because we worked with both sides of the aisle. We worked with people from completely different perspectives. And at the end of the day, right, if we were going to fix the problems that we're going to fix, we have to come together. And I know right now that seems like such a monumentous task because of the division and, you know, all the kind of energy that we're constantly getting from the media. But at the end of the day, like, People are people. And I still have that firm faith and belief in them. And the success was in being able to sit real live people in front of uh, maybe someone that had never talked to someone that had a criminal record and, and seeing what impact had when they were able to hear this story firsthand and connect with someone on an emotional place. So don't get me wrong. I have a, a fire inside of me. There's a lot that I want changed. Um, but I also just know that, you know, I want to make sure that you know, we're bringing peace to the center of all this and it's easier said than done. I saw a quote recently on Instagram. It said something like, they'll never know like the violence I had to experience to become this peaceful. I grew up in Los Angeles County with a very abusive family. And, you know, as a kid, I started out as a very traditional kid, like really good grades in school. Um, But, you know, it started out from something as small as like not being able to receive the love and approval from my parents when I came home. And that's that that's just that sets the foundation there. If you can't come home to a place where you feel loved and you feel encouraged. Now, begin to add on the fact that there started to be a lot of abuse in the household. My parents were fighting very aggressively. My dad started to beat us. You know, you quickly start to question your sense of, of value of who you are and who you're supposed to be in the world. And I went through this through my childhood, through my younger years. And I'll say that even though the years to come are going to be drastically more dark and difficult. Those years, those beginning years, probably were the deepest in my heart because I was the youngest and I needed the most love and I needed the most protection. And nobody was there to give that to me or, 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 to, or to provide me a kind of like light at the end of the tunnel. So those fundamental years really set the foundation of how her I felt inside. I, I, I tell people often this story that when my parents were still together, like I wanted to feel love so much that I went out. We had a dog that I loved dearly and we had a dog house in the backyard. And I went and I slept in the doghouse with my dog, hoping that like eventually my parents would come looking for me, right? Like it's like, you know, like 12 hours has passed. Like they're going to poke their head in and they're going to see their their son here in this doghouse. And they never came. I spent the night in the doghouse with my dog outside. And, you know, that's just kind of like that feeling of like, okay, like nobody's really here for me. You know, fast forward a few years, you know, the violence in my house is getting increasingly more uh, serious and severe. My parents finally divorced and I find myself in a household living with my dad and my brother. Um, I only have one sibling, my older brother. And he's going through the same traumatic situation and 
you know, trying to figure out his life. And, you know, he has his little brother that's looking up to him. But, you know, my brother ended up falling into drugs and falling into gangs. And naturally, I look up to him like he was everything to me. And I followed in those footsteps. Now, I think people often criticize this whole path of like, well, you know, two people grew up in the same neighborhood, but they didn't decide to go into a gang, right? But that also just takes away like how different we all are. And we realize that now how different we are, right? This individuality of just, we can go through the same traumatic effects and it may just affect us differently, right? But it's not to demonize someone over the other. We were looking for family. We were looking for a community that was going to be there for us. And at the end of the day, they were our community. They were there. They welcomed us with open arms, you know? And and then when you're young, you can't see 10 steps into the future of like the, what's going to happen and the consequences and the lifestyle. Those things just start to kind of like get baked into the lifestyle. So, you know, using drugs, gangs, um, you know, my father started to sell drugs out of the house. And by the age of 13, 14, I became addicted to a heavy drug. My dad was dealing out of the house and he would kind of use me as, as the tester to see if it was good drugs or bad drugs. And I've always felt like I was an intelligent kid, like young enough, but like I knew what was going on. And even though I was addicted to the drug, so I, I would use them. I knew in my heart, like, I can't believe my dad's giving this to me. Like, I mean, just on a breath there, man, that's unfathomable. Like, it's one thing to sleep all night in the doghouse and your parents are having a bit of a fight or like they're they're on the sauce and not paying attention or whatever that may be. It's a whole other thing to be somebody's test subject. I mean, that runs really, really deep, man. That runs really deep. And I'm just, I mean, every time you and I discuss this stuff and I want you to just pick up exactly where you were there, but I'm always so proud of you. It's incredible. The life that you've come to just love and honor and appreciate considering where you've come from. Um, so that's all happening. You're 14, you're 15 years old. What happens next? And by the way, like sometimes, you know, when I sit down with my brother and we're reminiscing, it, it, it blows our mind that we live this life. Sometimes it feels like a movie that didn't happen, uh, but, you know, very well did. Um, so here I am in this house. And like at this time, like, you know, the gang activity is picking up. I'm witnessing violence. I'm witnessing my brother, you know, going to the hospital. I'm witnessing friends getting hurt, killed, put in prison. And it was really interesting because there wasn't any support systems in our neighborhood. So I bounced between two neighborhoods growing up. One was like kind of like a traditional, you know, this is kind of like the hood, you know, situation where there's not like a lot of support. A lot of gangs are there. And in between another nicer area where my dad tried to move us to to get away from the gangs. But because it was predominantly white and because they were so focused on keeping the property value high, they refused to acknowledge there was a gang problem that was starting to arise, which happens when you exclude the only minorities are living in the city and you put them into a little bubble and you don't provide support and all these other things start happening. They refuse to create any programs to support people getting out of gangs or whatever it is. Instead, they they raised the million dollars to put everyone in prison. And from all the police officers that came into contact, they had one one mission. And that was to make sure that we all spent our, the rest of our life in prison. And they did a really good job of doing that to a lot of my friends. Um, some that were first-time offenders, nobody was hurt. Nobody went to the hospital situation, right? But because of gang enhancements and, you know, all these other enhancements that you can get, you know, you could just be next to someone and not have committed the crime. But because you're there, you're guilty accomplice. You have 40, 50 years. You know, I talk about this kid that we used to mentor that had 200 years in prison. People are like, that's not real. Like, you can't serve 200 years. I'm like, oh, no, we, we give that out in the U.S. 100%. We definitely do. But I'm, you know, in the midst of it, still just trying to figure out myself. But I'm in like the darkest places of my life. Like, I have no hope left. Like, I have no value for who I am. And 
I remember my, my brother tried to take his life and how like impactful that was for me because like my brother was my everything. He was the only thing I had left. And for him to do that, I was just like this thought just occurred to me that like, oh, he's, he's trying to get out of this. Like I should try probably get out of this. And I attempted to overdose and take my life as well. And this was like a really big turning point in my life because I was overdosing. I was terrified, Mark. Like I was terrified. Like I realized halfway in, like most people do. I didn't want to die. You know, like I just, I was calling out for help, but it was a little too late. And I'm in this dark room and I'm vomiting and I'm throwing up and I'm starting to have these convulsions and my dad comes home and I just get this spark of hope, like, like I'm going to be okay. And he comes into my room, I crawl to him and get up and I say, dad, like, please take me to the hospital, please. And he looks at me and he had saw that the pill bottles were all empty downstairs and he had this like disgust on his face and he started to beat me. And as I took each blow, like I fell to the ground and his words were, if you want to die so bad, now you're going to have to deal with this on your own. And he left. And just like that doghouse, I spent that rest of the night in my room on the ground, not knowing if I was going to make it the next day. I couldn't help but think that if the only person in my life at that time that should care about me the most didn't, why should I care about myself? I mean, we talk about bottom, but what happens the next day? When you get up, when you realize, first of all, you're alive, you made it, and obviously for a reason, right? There's an intervention there that happens because look what's happened since, and we'll get to that. But what happens the next day? That wasn't the moment. That wasn't the intervention. That was the realization that nothing mattered. Nothing mattered. I survived. And people said, like, was that the moment that, like, you felt, you know, because I'm a spiritual person and I believe in God, that God, like, gave you a second chance. And I was like, that's the moment I realized I had nothing left to care about. And I went 100% into the gang life and into what I was living. And I just didn't care anymore. So I started going in and out of jail. And by the time I was 16, I was facing 30 years in prison as an adult. I was still juvenile, but they can charge juveniles as adults. So I was going through that process. And I don't want to like sugarcoat it. At this time, like I am the classic example of the person everyone says, forget about. He's never going to change. I didn't think I was going to change. I thought I was supposed to spend the rest of my life in prison. Like I thought that I had to make peace with that. Right. So I had made peace with the fact that like my destiny and my journey was to spend the rest of my life in prison. And I had to just own that on my shoulders because life wasn't meant to be easy or it was never meant to provide me love or joy. And so I'm in, you know, in juvenile hall fighting my case and I'm completely devoted to my gang life. I'm constantly getting into fights. And it's crazy because like it's so I don't want to use the word cliche, but it's like something like straight out of a movie. But it's like this kid who's like so hardcore into gangs, like everyone knows his name. Like I was that person. Suddenly there was one person who helped me experience something that I never felt up until that age. And that was love. And if you could see me at that point of how deep this mentality was, it would sound almost crazy to hear now for me to tell you that it was love that changed me, right? Like it had to be the death of someone or something physical, but love is a physical act, right? Like love is all of it combined, but it was someone showing up and this person would tell me, you're going to change the world, James. I was like, are you crazy? I'm literally about to do 30 years in prison. I, what are you talking about, right? Like right. I'm not educated, I'm, but this person's like, I don't know what it is, but I'm just telling you right now, you're, you're gonna change the world. And there was a, a point when I was in solitary confinement for getting into a fight, where I got a phone call and I called this person and they just said, they asked me like, what are you doing? 
And it was so simple. Just what are you doing? But I went back to my cell and instead of having like this fake pride that we're taught to have for like, you know, fighting and getting respect, I realized that I was just a kid thrown in a box and I had no respect and I had no pride and nothing. I was stripped of everything. And here is this person that loved me. And I felt the love at that moment. And that love was such a beautiful feeling. Like I never felt anything like it. It was this feeling like of knowing that someone cares about you. And how crazy that some people haven't felt it all the way until they're 16, 17, 18. And I told myself, I would do anything to keep this feeling going. And I made that dramatic decision at that moment that like all this energy I had put into the gang, all this energy I had put to creating this reputation of who I was, I was going to put a hundred percent of it into changing my life and helping other people do it too. I didn't know how at that moment, but that was the decision I made. It's interesting because you and I have shared this story a couple of times. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to be able to sit in the discomfort that most men feel and saying, love changed me. Hmm. Like to hold that space, particularly coming from the places that we come from, like to say, love changed my life. And people are like, what happened? Like, did somebody give you the good book? Like, no, man, just love. Like, it's what we're all made of. It's what we're all here for. It's literally the purpose of all of this. Every part of it is all we're here to do is to make somebody else feel seen and safe. And that's love. So to be touched by it in such a dark place, but to have the courage to recognize it and to hold it versus the discomfort that you're feeling in it, right? Because there's got to be tremendous fear there. You're 16 years in life with everybody basically discarding you or disappointing you or terrifying you. You don't have any balance or any reference point for this. So, you know, we say divinity, we say deep spiritual like awakening. It's like, nah, somebody just fucking showed up for me. And I was, I was brave enough to be able to witness it and to onboard it and then to realize that it's my duty to pay that out. Right. right? And we always say, and hip hop, we say each one, teach one, like all of that. It's all the same thing. It's like you were given this opportunity or this chance or this lens of divinity. And like when you witness or hear truth and true love, you can't deny it. 100%. You know, when somebody says that to you. So it's so beautiful. So you make that decision, but you're facing 30 years. You know what? We're going to take a break. Folks, you're on Better. We're with my brother, James Anderson. So excited to come back. If you're not on the edge of your seats, I already know the story. I'm on the edge of mine. So keep it locked. We'll be right back. Folks, welcome back to Better. Yes, still on the edge of my seat on this side. We are with my brother, James Anderson, and he is gracing us uh, with the elongated story. And I think we're taking a lot of tools away already, but there's a lot more to come. So James, at this point, we're talking about love being an intervention, it landing, and then you realizing that you have a responsibility and a calling to help other people feel that same one and to feel seen and safe. So what do you do? Yeah. And, and it's funny because we're going to get into the different forms of love, right? There's soft love, there's hard love, there's love comes in many shapes and sizes, but this was the soft love that changed my life. And like you said, of course, this is hard. Like I'm, I'm having an identity crisis. This is who I built myself to be, who I was, who am I now? And not only that, like I'm this guy who has this huge reputation in this prison. So everyone knows who I am. So suddenly like I'm going to change my life, but I just felt such conviction and so much strength in it, right? Like I, I shift this idea of like, being a man was committing violence and 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 having people fear you to like no being a man was like loving and like protecting right because the protection part still has that 
a strength in it, right? Like you, you're protecting others. And that's what I wanted to do. And I saw that a lot of people followed because of who I was, I was able to change my life without being targeted because people still had kind of like that respect of like, he's still, he's still who he is and I could protect myself. But I, now I was like, I'm going to protect others. But long story short on that front is I ended up being left in juvenile court, right? And this is like very arbitrary decision. My other friend, similar crime, he spent 14 years in prison on, you know, on a life sentence just because we passed the bill. He was able to come home. But same thing, just his DA decided he should go to adult court. So I, I was blessed. I stayed in juvenile court. They gave me seven years, which was juvenile life with a strike. But of course, I was able to come home with, with good behavior. But I get sent to this place called DJJ, Division of Juvenile Justice, which is a very violent youth prison, right? This is where you kind of mix in the kids that are going to be serving sentences from 14 to 24 and kids that are waiting to turn 18 to go serve their life sentences in prison. And so this is when they this is when they get their sentences now. So they know they're they're hopeless. And, you know, there's corruption. There's all these different things happening here. But I show up in this really violent place that's like orchestrated and designed to be that way. And I'm like, I'm changing my life. Like I'm a different person, right? The first thing that happens when I get there is the guards pull me to the side and say, hey, James, you have a history of going out of your way to getting your rival gang members. And I said, that's not me. Like I'm a different person now. And they said, bull crap. We know who you are. And it's funny because when I finally left that unit, the guy said, he shook my hand and said, you're the man you said you are. And that's what I always prided myself on is if I said I was something, that's what I was going to do. So here I am serving this sentence and I run into another incredible woman named Rosalind Levent, who runs an organization called WASMO, Women of Honor and Men of Substance. And she has a badass story of her own. And, you know, she volunteers in prisons now and like gives so much hope and inspiration to people. And she became like my mother and she loved me. And she said, she saw me give a speech one time to people and she's like, wow, like this guy, this guy has something. And she came to me and she says, you need to get off your ass and you need to get up and do something because this world needs you. And that was such a powerful moment. She said, there's someone that's coming into this prison. I need to introduce you to him. You guys are going to be like family. You're going to do big things in the world. And, you know, I keep having these people telling me I'm going to do big things in this world. I'm like, what's going on? So she introduces me to a man who is now my brother, you know, has played a role as, as my father in some senses, as a business partner of many things, a Scott Budnick. And a lot of people in the criminal justice space know him and love him. Uh, he traditionally comes from the movie industry. He was executive director of the Hangover film, Starchy and Hutch, Due Date. Um, but he found this you know, deep passion for working with people inside. We became like family. And he had already started to like kind of group together this group of incredible people coming home from prison that needed a community. And when I was able to come home and get released after three and a half years for good behavior, me and him kind of like just joined superpowers. You know, I think he had superpowers and I had superpowers and we had such a heart and, and passion for this. And we co-founded an organization called the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, which at the time was a crazy concept. We're going to group a bunch of people from prison together in a community to help them go up to the state legislature to change laws. Republican lawmakers, right? Insane. People were telling us this is not like evidence-based programming. We don't know if this is going to work. And, you know, Today, we're one of the largest organizations in the country at, I think, $12, $13 million budget, you know, 150 employees. We've changed countless builds. We've impacted countless of lives where we have programs inside of prison. We help people get employment. We help people get housing. Uh, we have our own housing that people come into, our own transitional right. housing. Um, and, you know, but, but one of the key components of all this that was so powerful was the peer mentorship and the mentorship from other people. And you know, if you get a community of like-minded people that can support each other and finally they don't feel alone, 
we saw so much amazing things happen. And for me personally, coming home from jail, I had a mission. Like my mission was, I was tired of us being handed whatever straps there were as far as opportunities. Like I wanted to come home and say, hey, anything is possible. Whatever you dream of, you can accomplish. That was actually my first thing I asked everyone when they would come through our door. I'd have a meeting with them and I'd say, if there's one thing you could do in your life. What would it be if you had no limitations? Right. And they said, well, this is what it is. I said, great. That's going to be our goal to get you there. No other organization was really doing something like that, right? It was kind of like, oh, well, let's get you. And by the way, all those things are important. But I was just like, I want to shift the paradigm of like what's happening here. In my personal life, I went from co-founding this, this massive organization to, uh, you know, graduating from UCLA with double honors and, you know, my life transforming at this point, getting invited by President Obama to, to the White House multiple times, meeting with him personally um, and just having like this epic opportunity to shift the perspective and the storyline of people that came from my background and what it looked like to come home and, and change your life and achieve success. It's an incredible honor and task at the same time. And we'll, we'll go to the other side of it in a moment, but I want to pull a couple things out from ARC because revolutionary wouldn't even begin to start to describe what you guys created there. And from the life coach portion of it, having your reentry guided by somebody from personal experience who is there to love you and to show you like devotion and to help you really achieve greatness is so different. Right. And the system is the system. And this is not to say that anybody who is a parole officer is a negative person, but I'm just saying that the station in life that people are put in in social services generally one step above the poverty line themselves. So they are not in a condition or a state to have that radical love for anything. And they're usually not from lived experience. Right. So there's all of these tensions that are at play that do not allow to set somebody up for success because you always feel like a bother. You're a bother to somebody. Right. And you're just a, like pulling a number. It's like a pull tab everywhere you go your whole life. So, what you guys did from the ride home program to the life coaching, piece, like you're basically getting chauffeured from prison into a new way. And to do that and to show up for people and then to have the metrics behind it is why Obama brought you to the, to the White House is to say, wait a second, we have data here. Like there's actual math to say if we love people and that we show them that they're safe and we care for them with so little resource. Versus the military industrial prison complex, which takes up this much resource. You know, you and I have our two stats and this is like yours is the 70% recidivism. Mine was it costs three to four more times to keep somebody homeless than it does to house them. You put those two things together, we solve the country. And I'm not saying that facetiously. I'm just like, we can change so many of our problems from petty crime to like really criminalization of drugs, which is insane. All of the other things by just saying, hey. Give people homes, invest in them, give them supports. No questions asked. Raise welfare by three times. Like do all the things just to look after people and our problems will genuinely go away so we can all focus on the big ones. Climate, right? <laughs> yeah. The things that we really need to solve to live in a, a utopia that we could actually make. So I think hopefully you're getting the subtext of this if you're listening at home, which is anything is possible. And without the radical belief that you can change something or be important to so many people and help them see themselves and change that, we're lost. And there's a deluge of the negativity right now. And like anything, I haven't turned on the news games forever. And this is not, I, I know what's happening in the world. I stay up on it. I just can't watch talking heads talk about two different narratives on two different channels. Um, but how is anybody supposed to find any love or hope or justice in any of it? There's nothing there. And so why, another reason I wanted to have you on the show today is for this exact reason, right? Is like, 
we're not talking facetiously. This is not hyperbole. It's not learned from textbooks. This is like James was in jail. James' dad fed him drugs to test them out. James was beaten for years. James had somebody who loved him, came out, and ended up at the fucking White House with a president that mattered. Like, this isn't maybe, this is what's real. So to say that these things are impossible is ludicrous. And please dig into the ARC stuff. Obviously, in the show notes, we're going to have all of this stuff, including the organization that James mentioned earlier. But look at these statistics and, and see where they are. And they're irrefutable. So I think this is what we were talking about earlier today. There's a dark side to all of this, which is that's a tremendous amount of pressure for an individual, right? Mike Giant is painting a 25-story billboard of your face. You know, Obama's taking snaps with you. The organization is doing great. But how does that all land on James's shoulders? What does that feel like? Yeah. I mean, and, and this is this is interesting because right, like this isn't something that we've I've ever really discussed when we're talking about being the face of a movement and really being out there. But looking back, I realize how important this is part of the conversation, especially for people that are leading movements, or are involved in movements now that I've spent a lot of time working with organizations and see where the mental health is of staff. But coming home 20 years old without having any prior experience in anything and then going just straight into carrying so much weight on your shoulders. And, you know, I, I think all of it was fine because I was also so deeply involved in like therapeutic services and really taking like taking time to tackle my trauma. But the thing is, is when you come from these backgrounds, it's a constant battle. At the peak of kind of my success, right? Like graduating from UCLA and my organization doing great. My brother was about to come home from prison. And by the way, he did not want to change his life when I first came home. And then while he was in there, you know, we finally convinced him. He found inspiration. He started to teach himself how to code while he was in prison. And now he makes over $300,000 as a software engineer, right? So he was coming home though. And I was having this moment of like, my life is so good. And then I just find out that my dad kills someone. And I have detectives in my front door again. And they're treating me like I'm just a criminal again. I remember their words when they opened the door. They said, James, we like, we know you're trying to do good with your life and stuff. And I said, try. Like, I no, I think my life's actually incredible right now. Incredibly successful. But it, just even having to deal with that at six in the morning on your front door and that's the kind of attack you're you're facing it was such a traumatic event in my life because you know to see all the progress i had made in helping all these people and change their lives and come home from prison to my father catching a murder case and while i was in court watching him get sentenced to life in prison and immediately after that you know i, I had left art to kind of focus on social impact in corporations and landed my role at guayaquia as the director of social impact on their leadership team I never gave myself time during that process to ever really process that or or be able to heal and come back from a place of fullness, right? I was running on empty, but you know, I wanted to see if I could squeeze out a couple more miles. And ultimately, like so many people in the work, it's really hard to give from a place of emptiness. It takes leadership to be able to acknowledge that, but you know, it took me a while to get to the point where I realized, hey, I need to do something about this. Because of our backgrounds, as much work as we've done, you still sometimes have those preconceived notions in the back of your mind that's like, wait a minute, you got to be strong. You have to carry this on your shoulders. You have to keep moving forward. But, you know, I think that's why it's important to have these conversations and challenge that. 100%, man. And I mean, I've got a thousand more questions and knowing we've got some time left. But I mean, the first thing I want to say just right now is like, you were in court for your dad. Like after all of that, the truth of somebody's integrity and their character really shines in moments where they have a moment to be right and they choose just to be true 
you could have just at that moment been like, I'm good. That's what you deserve. All the things that you did to me. And instead, you're there in a blazer. All that we really have is to know that we've done our best and shown up our best, regardless of what is done unto us, um, with people who we love and trust. And so forgiveness, and I've said this so many times, forgiveness isn't for the other person, it's for you. And you know what? I actually learned a lot through that experience. And I think that in some ways, I was not as empathetic as I could be because I struggled with people that just stayed in that place, in that dark place, stayed in that depression. And for me, it was like, well, why don't you just pull yourself out of it? Like, you you can do this. And when I went through that with my father, interestingly enough, I suffered a lot as a kid, an extraordinary amount, but I never fell into clinical depression. What I felt was clinical depression. This was the first time I, it happened in my life. And I fell into a deep depression. And like, I have the best resources. I have the best therapist. I have everything. Like, I'm opening up and I can't get out of it. It took me three years. I couldn't get out of it. And I just realized oh, sometimes this is just a process and people have to go through it. that part. And our role sometimes is not to fix anything, to heal, it's to just be there and to support one another through those moments, right? And help people find their own path. And that was like a big watershed moment for me where I was like, okay, my empathy just grew by tenfold now. Because you were able to have it for yourself finally. My partner, bless her, has um, been so critical in my life to be able to like allow me to zoom out and zoom in and zoom out and zoom in. And I mean, you and I met at a time we're both running so hot, right? Like our conversations, it'd be hug, love, like, okay, what are we doing? Great. Okay. Got to be, you got to meet this person, this person that we were hustling like nonstop because we were taught in the mindset, like the more that we can put together resource wise, the more successful we will be for other people. And we were depleted. Like I can remember sitting with you in Los Angeles, having a conversation. I was like, I felt like I was going to nod off and not because I was like, I love you. And I was super interested. I was like, I'm so tired right now. And you're like, yo, are you tired? You're like, I'm exhausted too. I want to introduce you to this guy, but can we just sit? And I was like, let's just sit, right? And just finding a moment. And I don't say like, that's literally what happened in that meeting. You get too tired. And I think we are particularly also in a place and everybody is, and this, this tool is for everybody, where if we're not doing something new or fresh or on the cutting edge or at the latest thing, we feel like our relevance is lost in the world and our identity gets lost a little bit too. And instead, leaning back and saying, ARC is still operating every single day and growing exponentially and making the incredible impact that it is. That is enough. That was enough, right? It's more than enough. Like our organization is still putting out a few thousand meals a day and we're about to start doing it right here. Like that's enough. But for us, it never feels like it is. Like even saying it, I'm like, what is it? And there's so much more to do. And but there's so also like without, as you said, as you sort of started this interview, you you really can't, you can't pour from an empty cup. And so yeah. proud of you for being able to take a knee, really proud to see you come out the other side in just such a, I want to say relaxed and centered state, which is going to be that next evolution of James Anderson, right? You're like, I've been to the top. Not really. You know, you know what the circuit is. I know what the circuit is. You've been to the top of the circuit. I've been up there too. It's like now the work can actually in earnest, continue to grow, right? Because you're not worried about any of those things. They've already been achieved, if you will, right? I'm excited for what's next, man. And on that note, you know, you are taking a moment um, and you did do an 18-month sabbatical. And I love the line from you, talent is everywhere, opportunity is not, right? And so when you're traveling around the world, I know that you're also incredibly artistic and poetic and you're witnessing things and you channel that into the work that you do. 
What's the sabbatical given you and what have you taken away? Yeah, it's huge. I, I mean, and just to touch on one piece is you're more than enough. Like you've already done enough. You know what I mean? I, I keep telling people in the movement, you've already done enough. Like this isn't just for you. If we come from a place of that, like it becomes kind of individualistic kind of pursuit and it's, we can't do it on our own. We have to do it together. Right. And if you're not whole, if you're not like full, like that mark inspires people just by being near you, like they get motivated and energized. But I noticed that when I was on the end of my spectrum, I wasn't motivating people like that. I was kind of a little bitter and tired. And when I decided to make the sabbatical, I was kind of like also like another peak of my career, right? I was leadership team at Guayaki. I was expanding this social impact initiative for hiring formerly incarcerated people across the country, actually internationally. And, you know, we just had raised a lot of money and I had decided, you know what? I need to leave and I need to take care of myself because I can't be inspiring and inviting people to this new life and this, you know, an opportunity to find meaning within themselves if I wasn't operating from a place of meaning or joy. One of the things that the sabbatical taught me was we need to be okay with the calm and the peace. It took me three months to detox from the work life, meaning for three months, I woke up every day at 6 a.m. feeling like I needed to do something, like there was something that I'm not doing that I should be doing. I got to get on top of it. And right. it was on the third month, on a, I was walking by myself in Portugal and I was headed to Sintra and it just hit me. That feeling that I used to get when I first came home from prison, like I got it because you're just so happy to come home. You're so grateful. This peace of like the trees were beautiful. And I was like, wow, like this world gives us so much to be joyful already. Like there's everything around this is just built for our pleasure and our joy and our appreciation. That, that peace entered my heart. And like when you operate from a place of peace in your heart and you work on that, like the passion, the fire, like all those things are easier to build off that foundation. Because like peace in my mind is like a solid, firm foundation, right? If you bid on any other foundation, that fire might burn right through that hole. You know what I mean? Like, and it goes to the core of who you are and you can't, that's not sustainable for the long term. Definitely, definitely not. Well, brother, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for being so open. I'm sure there's lots of takeaways from this. I, as always, get some. So I'm feeling reinvigorated in my own piece. But before we tap out, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience? No, just thank you so much for having me on here. And thank you to the audience for checking in and tuning in. And, you know, I hope if they're able to walk away with anything is it's make sure to spend a little bit more time loving others and loving yourself and just understand that that you are already enough. I feel like you're talking directly to every single person with headphones on right now. Uh, love you, man. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Love you, brother. Talk soon. Folks, you're on better. It's been another incredible week with my brother, James Anderson. We appreciate your attention and attention as always. If you enjoyed the conversation, please share it with a few friends uh, and let them enjoy it too. Thank you.